This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Nicholas Shea, Professor of Philosophy at the Institute of Philosophy, University of London. His new book, Representation in Cognitive Science, is just out from Oxford University Press. In order to explain thought in natural physical systems, mainstream cognitive science posits mental representations, typically states of the brain, that carry information about the world and are used by the system to guide its behavior. Theories of representation provide explanations of what information or content these neural states carry and how they come to have the contents that they do. In his new book, Shea approaches the problem from the perspective of the role that content plays in explanations of a system's behavior. He synthesizes his writings in the theory of content into a unified theory that integrates two main components, task functions and exploitable relations, into a pluralist view he calls veritel semantics. He presents and defends his account and considers how it fares in relation to competitor theories. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Nicholas Shea. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Hi, nice to talk to you. I'm very pleased to have you here to talk about representation in cognitive science, um, which kind of pulls together a lot of what you've been writing in response to other people for a number of years, and now you sort of put together your own view, Veritel Semantics. So before we get into the actual mechanics of the book itself, um, maybe you can say a bit about yourself, your background in, in philosophy, and then how you came to write this book. So I came to philosophy, um, study it formally quite late, having um, studied math as an undergraduate, and then uh, trained as a lawyer and worked as a lawyer for a, a few years. Um, but all the time in parallel with that, right back to my undergrad days, I was reading bits of philosophy and bits of um, popular psychology. So um, people like Dan Dennett were people I was reading. And uh, so I had this kind of parallel side interest in issues about the mind and how it worked. And then at some point, uh, I got the chance to study that in a bit more depth in a sabbatical from uh, my uh, day job. And that turned out to be, a, in, in retrospect, turned out to be a career change. Um, and it was pretty early on, so I was. It was always questions about the mind that drew me into philosophy, and it was pretty early on in studying that those those sets of issues at Birkbeck at the University of London. Um, 
that I came to think, well, consciousness is interesting um, and metaphysics of mind is interesting, but actually there's this other issue which isn't so obvious. Um, but once you get your head around it, it's probably just as fundamental and very, very interesting and has some prospect of, of progress. And that's intentionality or the nature of representation. And um, and I was very impressed by the kind of conceptual and empirical progress that's been made on that issue in recent times. So in the last 50 or 70 years. So it seems like there are things that have been done in psychology and the cognitive sciences and in logic and in computing that really gives the philosopher new materials to work with. So it's a very exciting area to be in. Um, and early on in that, in reading into that, um, I wrote to Ruth Milliken at um, uh, the University of Connecticut because it seemed to me that her approach was a very promising one. And uh, she invited me there as a visiting scholar. So I ended up talking to her quite a bit, even before starting my PhD. And then I did my PhD with David Papineau, who's another person that approaches these issues about naturalizing mental content in uh, quite a similar way to Ruth, um, but uh, with a very different starting point. So right from the early days of my PhD, I was quite um, involved in thinking about the nature of representation and very much exposed to the teleosemantic approach. So that's something that's been in the background, a set of issues that I've been working on uh, for a very long time, working on other things at the same time, but um, really the interest in the set of issues that I'm working on in the book goes right back then to the early days of my PhD. You know, you're working within what I suppose could be called mainstream cognitive science uh, or mainstream philosophy mind inter or representational theories. Um, could you could you say a bit about the sort of general background that you're working in as well as the restriction that you that you have in the book to subpersonal states of representation? One of the things we want to understand as a philosopher or a scientist or even a layperson thinking about the mind is um, what is thinking? How is it that we can engage in these um, rich thought processes? Uh, and that's most obvious when we're sitting with our eyes shut, um, working out what to do or uh, making a plan or thinking through something that's happened. Um, but it's obviously uh, equally important, probably more important in the day to day engagement with the world where. Uh, we encounter things in the world, we have some um, uh, internal states, perceptions and thoughts, and then we act on the world. So the nature of those things is a, a really central puzzle in philosophy. Um, and it seems to me that the idea that um, in a lot of cases, thought consists of the processing of mental representations has proven to be a very fruitful one. So I'm starting with the um, presupposition that that's an idea that we should take very, very seriously. Um, I mean, it could turn out that uh, when we beaver away, we find that there's something wrong in the foundations of that idea. Um, but my starting point is that we should take it very, very seriously. Um, and the idea that we're processing representations has worked well for uh, understanding what it is to go through a step-by-step -step bit of thought, like uh, a logical argument. but in the background, no one has got a really clear idea. There's certainly no consensus of how the representations that you go through in a bit of thought could be about things in the world, how it is that they reach out and manage to concern things in the world. Even the very idea of aboutness is not something that we've got a very clear take on. And that's a problem that was very clearly identified by Brentano in the 19th century, and it's one that philosophers have been working away on a lot, um, certainly in the last 30 years.
So I'm locating my uh, interest very much in that tradition. People thinking about the nature of intentionality, the nature of representational content, have usually started with the most interesting cases. So that's things like beliefs and desires, these are the thoughts that are most apparent to us, um, and conscious states. Uh, but the same problem arises for uh, representations as they're studied in perhaps the most successful bits of um, cognitive science, psychology, cognitive neuroscience. The cases where we really know an awful lot of what, about what's going on, uh, right down to neural mechanisms, because the cases are much simpler. Um, so the bits of psychology, if you're going to look at them, but um, where the idea of representation is really most secure are ones where the representations involved aren't ones that the person or the animal is conscious of. They're not full-blown beliefs and desires. And it seemed to me that we could make progress on this issue of understanding intentionality, understanding the nature of representation, by at least trying to get clear about those things. Right at the front of the book, I um, quote something that was a really a throwaway mark, remark, more or less, made by Martin Davies, and he was kind of a let me um, put it in the book, which was the presupposition, which um, he was mentioning, and I think a lot of people shared, that uh, we can sort out the intentionality for subpersonal states. Um, the really difficult question is intentionality of beliefs and desires and conscious states. And it seemed to me the antecedent of that had not been um, established yet. And it's a very useful piece of work to see if it um, can be established, not only because it's useful in its own right, there's this notion of representation that's being presupposed by the cognitive sciences that we're still not clear about, but also because it's a stepping stone or a potential stepping stone to understanding the more interesting kind, the more full-blooded kind, conscious states and beliefs and desires and tensions. And so, on. so that was the motivation for taking the tack of focusing on um, subpersonal cases and really quite cognitive science kinds of cases in order to motivate the framework. So one, I want to get back to that question of how how these are how you envision their relationship, you know, between the subpersonal. But let, let's let's get to the book first. Um, so you you start from I mean one of the one of the uh, innovations or or you know interesting starting points for you is the idea of the role of content in explanation of behavior. I mean that's sort of your your you know big motivating factor in that. Um, whatever account of content you give, that's kind of the primary criterion for is it a good theory? Could you could you explain that approach that you have? So if we're starting with um, mental representations that aren't part of the conscious mental life of the subject, and they're not beliefs and desires, things that people would tell you about, um, assess with one another, report on, then we need some other handle on um, uh, the content of those states. So that's one motivation. We need to look somewhere else other than a subject telling us what they think it is they're thinking about. But another motivation is just looking at the way that um, uh, representations are relied on in the cognitive sciences. Uh, their primary explanatory role is to explain patterns of behavior. So uh, if the puzzle is, what's the nature of representational content? What are these representations about? The thing they're being relied on for is to explain behavior. And so it seems to me that a primary desideratum for the theory is that a theory of content should throw light on the central explanatory practice, which is adverting to the content of representations to explain a behavior. And scratching a little bit more below the surface of that, um, the, the interesting thing and, and already quite puzzling thing that we do in these kinds of explanations is that we've got this notion of correct or incorrect, true or untrue, satisfied or unsatisfied. And that's 
centrally explanatorily relevant and that in itself is puzzling so that's why i take that pattern of um explanatory reliance on representations to be really one of the central things that we want our theory to throw light on okay um so you mentioned that one of the, I mean, you mentioned Ruth Millikan, who is, you know, one of the founders of the, the teleosemantic approach to this very question. And, uh, and you say that, that teleosemantics as a, as a general approach is probably the closest precursor to your, to your theory. Um, so maybe you could say about what it, what it is about teleosemantics that you that you found to be most problematic about that, and then, um, you know, how your theory uh, overcomes that particular issue. Yeah. So stepping right back to the thing that you were asking about at the beginning, when I started reading up on these issues and going to seminars and so on, it seemed to me there were interesting ideas in information theory, in causal theories, um, that there was probably something right about uh, a central role for inferences, and certainly with beliefs, but that the, the, there was a really new idea here with teleosemantics, which um, had the prospects of making a connection between this um, normativity, or I'd say quasi-normativity, of the explanatory practices of using correctness and incorrectness, and also made very strong connection with uh, the real empirical cases. So it was very much grounded in. Um, representation as it goes on in in humans and animals as natural systems so that's why i it seemed to me that that was a set of research questions that um uh, you know reading ruth's groundbreaking book i thought there's an awful lot of progress being made here but it's still early days there's an awful lot more to find out and that's what motivated me to go and work with her and then to work with david papano on the phd um and at some stages i think people thought that uh, teleosemantics would just be a relatively straightforward answer um, to the nature of intentionality of beliefs and desires and intentions. But already when I was reading into it, into it, it was clear that there were pretty fundamental problems, which seemed to me problems of scope, really, of um, just how many cases teleosemantics could cover. It seemed to work very well for simple animal signaling, for example, the honeybee nectar dance, which is one of Ruth Millican's central cases, um, but then had problems extending to uh, more full-blown cases, internal states driving behavior, and certainly to police and desires. And um, there are various of the limitations of teleosemantics that I thought it was important to um, to uh, address, to kind of generalize away from. And just let me let me mention two. The one is um, for Bruce's version of teleosemantics, contents always have to eventually lead back to some basis in evolutionary functions. So that depends on very deep evolutionary history of an organism. Um, and there are various reasons for thinking that might be too limiting, but that covers some cases and not all cases. Um, and another one is that um, it's standardly been worked out in a picture where representations are things on which the organism conditions its behavior directly. So it kind of consults the representation as a stand-in for consulting some fact in the external world, and then it behaves appropriately, conditions its behavior on that representation. Um, and that's been come known in the literature as a producer-consumer model. So the representations are intermediates between a producer of representations and a consumer of representations. And that was a second 
uh, assumption that seemed to me too limiting. Because when we look at the cases in cognitive science, it looks like what's standardly happening is that a whole bunch of representations interact in a reasonably complex computation. And a result of all of that is that behavior gets driven. So the idea that there's a discrete consumer representation by representation is something that we have to generalize away from in some way. So looking at a whole range of cases made me think um, we need to generalize away from that. And then even just starting the project, it would seem clear that some of the restrictions in semantics were probably too narrow to deal with the range of natural cases. So uh, as I mentioned before, you, 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 you label your view Veritel or, or Veritel. I wasn't sure from the footnote. Um, Veritel semantics. Um, uh, so there are two main elements. Uh, one is an idea of of task function, what you call task functions, and the other is what you call exploitable relations. And these come in, you know, each of these categories comes in in varieties, which yields the pluralist view that that you that you put forward. Could you say something about these two basic components and and maybe some of their varieties? Right. So the, let me start with task function. So that's generalizing the notion away from the notion of evolutionary function. And the, th- the thought here really came out of the process. So the process of doing research over quite a long period of time in this book was to learn a lot of psychology, cognitive neuroscience, talk to lots of people in the field and see how their explanatory practices work and get clear about some really good models, some models where people really know what's, have a pretty good idea what's going on in terms of what internal states are being processed as representations and what kind of behavior is produced as a result. And the pluralism really came about by trying to find a framework that would fit a whole disparate bunch of cases and finding that a single framework doesn't fit. And so we need some variable components. So on the uh, function aspect, there are some cases where it seems like um, the way that the representation producing and consuming, relying behavior reliance goes, has just been evolved more or less directly so that organisms develop uh, representational capacities without having to learn anything very much about the environment. So their uh, correctness conditions seem pretty tightly tied to what that mechanism's been evolved to do. But in other cases, um, uh, organisms are much more open in what they do, and the mechanisms that the neuroscientists and cognitive psychologists are telling telling us about has been very, very dependent on learning, not at all plausibly one that um, has evolved for special purpose functions. And that's most obvious in human cases where um, many of the things that we interact about are just recent human artifacts that we read things, uh, which is a recent enough human invention invention that there's probably not been very much um, evolutionary selection for reading. We deal with money, we deal with uh, prestige and esteem in our society in ways that are um, probably different from past societies. So it's a whole bunch of things where the mechanisms that psychologists are studying are clearly learned and the whole bunch of their nature comes up, comes about through learning. So then it looks like you need an account of um, what uh, representation uh, producing and use is directed at that encompasses at least evolution and learning. And that got me thinking about, well, why is it that we've got representation using systems around at all? Why is it that so much of the animal kingdom um, goes around the world uh, solving its problems by relying on relatively complex internal states, what what lies behind that. Um, and that's where this idea of there being um, 
a cluster of more, more or less natural processes uh, that often come together uh, arrived. So we start with organisms that evolve. Um, uh, that means there are outcomes that they've evolved to produce. And one thing, thing we find evolution doing is producing mechanisms to produce those outcomes more robustly. So if it's important for a certain kind of organism that you avoid um, a certain kind of poison or if you that you get a certain kind of food, then evolution will tend to produce multiple mechanisms for getting that outcome. So then we get evolutionary function and robustness coming along together. Um, once you start thinking about uh, those things being together with a natural reason, for a natural reason, then learning comes in as a uh, robustness mechanism. Learning allows organisms to find new ways of getting good outcomes, finding intermediate outcomes that are ways of getting good outcomes and so on. Um, and then stepping back a bit and thinking about natural selection being a mechanism for producing these things that have got robustness, um, are both directly evolved and through learning. Um, the, the biological literature points out that the organism itself, something that's so basic that we take for granted, but the organism itself is really a robustness mechanism. So evolution by natural selection can take place in principle on things that aren't organisms. But once you've got an organism, it carries around its behavioral dispositions in a quite robust way because of this kind of complex organization that keeps it um, with its organization out of equilibrium with its in environment, but in its own state. So there seem to be natural reasons why robustness in the forms of natural, uh, why robustness goes together with these feedback processes um, learning evolution by natural selection and an organism keeping itself alive. Um, so that builds up into the picture of uh, task functions. Um, well, can but, I? Uh, yeah, 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 sure. Uh, no, I was just going to say, as I was reading this, and this came up later later in the book, actually, um, it sounded a lot like, like Dretzky's structuring explanations, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that that's correct to think of it that way? This this idea of robustness and and stabilizing of the functions, or or how how does it differ? Okay, so task functions have got two components. They have to be stabilized functions and robust outcome functions. So this is all just my terminology, but so but that means there's two things that come together to be for for some outcome to be task functional, and one is that the uh, organism produces it robustly. That's the thing I've just been talking about, and the other is that it's been stabilized, and then. Uh, the long spiel I just gave you suggested that there are three important stabilizing mechanisms for to, to allow systems to produce uh, outcomes robustly. Evolution by natural selection is one, learning is another, and just persisting as an organism is another. And uh, those are all like Dretzky's case to this extent. So Dretzky's pointing out that there are cases where uh, the reason something is configured as, it's, as it is today, in, other, in his case, is the reason why behavior is wired up to stimuli the way it is, is because of something that happened in the past and the feedback that was produced in the past. Dretzky focuses just on learning, and his theory is tied to learning as the case of that that can produce content. And I found reading uh, Explaining Behavior, the book where he sets this out, really inspiring, because that seemed to me a really central idea, but again, one that we could generalize away from. So if it's stabilizing processes that make a systems processing the way that it is that play a role in fixing content, then we should accept the evolutionary kind and it seems to me also the, the pure persistent kind as well as the learning kind. So I think I take it to be a generalization of of uh, Dretzky's insight there. Okay, great. So yeah, so continue. Okay, so that's the task function side. And then the 
The other thing that needs to come together with task functions is the idea of exploitable relations. So let me just step back a bit. One idea we might have when we think about representations is that a representation is some kind of internal stand-in. Um, it's something that uh, a person, an organism, a system, a computer can consult when dealing with the world because it doesn't have access directly to some relevant fact in the world. It has access to um, an internal stand-in. And then looking across the cases that I looked at in cognitive science, um, it seemed to me that that idea of a stand-in actually bifurcated um, in line with two major resources that philosophers thinking about representation have relied on. One is just the idea that you've got an internal state that correlates with something external. So uh, you want to know when a fly arrives, it's useful to have an internal state that goes off when a fly arrives. That's just correlating. That's having an internal state that raises the probability that some relevant external state obtains. But it seemed to me the, there's a different idea, um, uh, which is that you've got a structured set of internal states whose structure corresponds to something in the world. And you can make use of that structure in particular to do computations to work out what's the case. And a central case of that would be having a cognitive map, having some structure. In the case I look at in the book, it's actually a structure over neurons, which can be used to compute where to go. And I don't think the two ideas can be assimilated to one another, at least not obviously. I mean, I'm, I don't make a positive argument that they can't, but um, I can't see easily how they can. So I embrace a pluralism there as well. Um, and why they call them exploitable relations is the thought that um, to be using a stand-in, there's got to be something about the stand-in <laughs> that the organism's using. That's the thing that it's exploiting. And it could be exploiting one or other of these relations. And for all I know, there could be more. So that gives us a four by um, uh, that gives me it gives us two kinds of exploitable relations, potentially three kinds of task functions. Um, so lots of different varieties of content. But I should say that I think in paradigm cases, uh, organisms will have um, task functions for the same output for all three reasons. So people have evolved to get food and they learn to get food and food also contributes to their persistence. Um, and in quite a lot of cases, people will use something that's got a structural correspondence, like an internal map, along with correlations in order to solve their tasks. So we could we could think of um, representation usually or often involving all of these components. But if you want to ask me strictly for a philosophical theory, what does it take to have content? Then I've got, I think I've got to say that, well, you can put these components together piecemeal and it, you still have the, the things that allow representational explanation to get its grip. And what... Uh, I mean, I, I probably should have raised this before, but the whole idea is that these sorts of representations play uh, an important explanatory role. Um, we'll we'll go into that in a second. Is the what exactly type of whether that's causal or not? Because um, you're very careful not to call it a causal explanatory role. But what is the what is the sort of behavior that this explanation? the content explanations um, of this sort are intended to to explain and and what doesn't count in terms of the types of behavior? Yeah, so I think there's not very much that's things that seem pre-theoretically to be the kind of behavior that we explain representationally, I think mostly end up counting. So from quite low-level things, we're not very aware of it, but when we reach out to pick something up, there's a lot of information being processed via our eyes and bits of our brain guiding our hand and allowing the fine grazing adjustments so that we uh, grab the thing that uh, we're aiming at and grab it with the right grip and the right strength. So all of that low-level stuff is given representational explanation in, in motor neuroscience. And I think 
Um, and the notion of correct and incorrect comes in there. So people can you can zap people's brains and they'll get it wrong or noise means that they'll get it wrong. And you can trace the failing to pick up the object or knocking over the object to misrepresentation going on in one or other component of that system. So those are low level cases. But I think it, even in my some personal examples, you've got behavior that extends up to more ordinary things. So um, uh, in the animal cases, getting food or uh, navigating itself to a particular location, or, um, and, and ant getting itself home. So there's there's fine grain, and then there's quite um, kind of central to the to the life of the organism cases. Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail, from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So, so actually those, those sorts of cases like, you know, reaching out, grabbing a, you know, a doorknob with the right pressure and the right aperture of one's fingers. Um, you know, those are often the, the, exactly the sorts of cases that, you know, somebody from, a you know embodied cognitive perspective, uh, or even going back to uh, Rodney Brooks um, and the idea that you don't need representations for these sorts of explanations, and that uh, in a way you know traditional computational theory of mind led us off on a on a bit of a, um, a wild goose chase, in, at least in certain respects. Um, in terms of having representational explanations of, of everything, including those sorts of cases. So how do you how do you respond to those? Do you just say, you know, no, you you guys are wrong. I mean, they, they really do advert to um, representations. I don't have an across the board argument. I mean, I think there can be cases um, where there's a dynamic explanation of some pattern of behavior um, that doesn't depend on inter- internal representations and that could produce relatively complex patterns. But so my motivation is just to look at the good, well-substantiated cases and look at what's going on in the in the cognitive neuroscience and in the cognitive science. And there, for the most controlled cases, they're just knee-deep in representational talk. There's, there is some kind of dynamic loop that establishes the trajectory of the arm, but there are components of it that are um, targeting, and there are components of it that are taking in information from the eyes, taking in proprioceptive information from the limb doing stuff with that information. And when things go wrong in terms of not reaching the, the goal or not having the right grip width and so on, we can, um, well, the standard explanations point to bits of that circuit that are um, going wrong, bits that are supposed to carry information about one thing but are failing on this occasion and so on. So I'm just trying to understand the notion of representation as it's being used in those cases to explain behavior. And then there's a background question, are they empirically well-supported? And I take it that in quite a lot of cases they are. There is something else going on, I think, though, in this debate between representationalists and anti-representationalists, which is what it takes to be a representation. So I'm working with quite a, from their perspective, quite a deflated notion of what it takes to be a representation. It doesn't need to be conscious. It doesn't need to be part of our mental life. It doesn't need to be connected to things that we report and so on. And it may well be that there's a, a good intuitive notion of representation that we get from ordinary life that has an awful lot more commitments built into it. And so that would generate an intuition that we don't need representation in that sense to deal with these low-grade guidance control and kind of behavioral performance 
constraints. And to that extent, people are talking past one another because uh, what's not needed is some stronger form of uh, representation, and we're all agreeing about that. But I do think there are, I mean, I should say again, I do think there are real empirical questions here. And then, then there's just a challenge. If you think that there's a purely dynamic explanation of some pattern of behavior, like a Rodney Brooks kind of subsumption architecture, then it'll be an empirical question whether that purely dynamic system produces the recognized pattern of behavior or or whether the rival, you know, like a Daniel Wolpert information processing motor control explanation actually is empirically better conforming. And an- another related criticism in a way is um, you mentioned the idea that the relevant empirical sciences are knee-deep in representational talk. And I know uh, some people... Uh, Francis Egan, for example, says, well, you know, we don't have to give this a, a realist sort of an interpretation. It's just a it's just a gloss, as she puts it, a heuristic for talking about the system. Uh, it's a vaguely or generally Dinettian idea of, you know, interpreting the system in a particular way that is fruitful for explanation. Um, but there's no reason for us to think that there are really you know, representations, you know, some sort of, you know, objects or vehicles in the brain that carry the information. Um, how, do you, how do you respond to those sorts of, of criticisms? So I think this is a real, really crucial issue. So let me talk about both Francis Egan and Daniel Dennett here. So let's start with Dennett. So he's the more pure, purely instrumentalist. Um, and he says, we, there's a perfectly good notion of representation where um, uh, a system's a representer just, just in case we can predict and explain its behavior well by positing it as having representations. Um, that seems to be a perfectly good notion of representation, uh, one that doesn't depend on vehicles, and one that we have a roughly naturalistic treatment of, although, as you say, there's pragmatic elements. It might be in the eye of the beholder what you're trying to explain. Um, uh, but it's not the one that I'm focusing on, because in my cases, there really are internal vehicles. So I've focused on a few cases where there's quite a lot of neuroscientific evidence as to what the internal states are that are driving the behavior. So Dennett might say, why should we care? But I think when there are those internal states, we actually get some more explanatory traction. We have more to say about why the system's behaving as it does, or things are ruled out. Uh, so you could have, in principle, you could have two uh, perfectly good intentional stance explanations, which are compatible if you didn't make a commitment to the being internal vehicles. But if you supplement with the, the with the assumption that there are real internal vehicles for the internal states that that are presupposed by these, then one would be ruled in and one would be ruled out. And then equally, if you if you know you're in one of those two cases, uh, you can say more about how the system will behave, how the range of cases it'll behave in, what it'll do in response to learning, um, what kind of pathologies and breakdown it will show. Uh, we get some explanatory explanation as to why representations stay of the same over time and change piecemeal and we get um, some more connection with these questions that um, you were just alluding to about causal efficacy of representational content so it seems to me we have both kinds the purely instrumentalist and the realist and when the realist one is available there's some virtues to giving the explanations in realist terms and we find that in cognitive science but now there's a more significant challenge which is Frances Egan's one so she thinks there's something substantial and important to the idea that the systems we're studying in cognitive science are processing internal states. They're doing computations for her, and computational structure isn't something that's liberal or in the eye of the beholder. It's a real feature of of the organism or the computer or the system. But she argues that that's really doing all the explanatory work. And on top of that, we might have 
um, representational content as a gloss that allows us to kind of see in our terms what the system's doing. But what the system's really doing is just computing. So a classic example that people will be familiar with of this, that you have a computer that's making computations that are suitable both for playing chess and for guiding a war. And according to Egan's account, the computational goings-on are just the, the only fact of the matter about that system. And then on top of that, we could have a pragmatic loss. We could see it as if it were moving chess pieces around, or we could see it as if it were um, moving tanks and missiles around. And each of those might give us a kind of handle on what it's doing. And so I do have a disagreement with that. I think actually we're um, very close in our views about what's actually going on in the real cases. But it seems to me that the uh, additional layer, the world involving content that you get when you're giving a representational explanation isn't merely a pragmatic gloss because it's something that comes out of real facts about how an organism is embedded in its environment. So an organism is doing something in its environment, it's interacted with its environment, other people and other organisms and other things in its environment. Those are all real relational properties that it bears. And that seems to me to narrow down and indeed home in on a particular content that its internal states are bearing. So I think if if the focus of representational explanation, as I think it is in many cases, is on uh, explaining how a system interacts with things in its distal environment or achieves results in its distal environment, gets to a new location, harvests some fruit, fruit or food, uh, does something with some of its conspecifics, then those explanations are world-involving and they're keying into a, a particular set of objects and properties in the world. And as a result, its internal states, as well as standing in these relations, dynamic relations to each other that we could characterize entirely non-semantically, they stand in real relations to these things in the world and that fixes on a, a certain content. And that doesn't seem to me just a matter of pragmatics, not something that's just in the eye of the beholder. Those are further relational facts about the organism and content explanation is relying on those and keying into those, it seems to me. Right. So so in theory, where somebody like Francis Egan gives two different glosses like you gave with the chess pieces or the or the war material, um, in theory there that is falsifiable on your view. You know, which which of those is correct? Well I, I think it's I mean it's rather flat footed. I'd say look at the look at what the computer's doing. So you could take the same set of computations and if it's located in a war game and it's firing missiles, then it has one set of contents. And if it's located in a chess game, then it's got another set of contents. So um, um, I'm, I don't think the content's being fixed by just the intrinsic facts about its organization. And it's, um, these are, it's not some deep empirical issue that makes one set of explanations the right ones to be giving. It's just kind of real... Uh, partly historical, but real facts about the organism and how it's embedded in its world. Okay. So I, I, in a way, this sort of kind of brings up an issue of, of indeterminacy of content, right? Which is, there's always been a, an issue for naturalized semantics. Um, would, you, would you say that, I mean, I, I think you say that there's always going to be some, some indeterminacy uh, in the system, or in the representations, and you're never going to get rid of all of it to get determinate, absolutely determinate content. Is that is that correct? So uh, in the kinds of cases I'm looking at, where um, we've only got these subpersonal resources that are constraining our theories of contents, that is right. Um, I just don't know whether that's going to be true um, 
at the personal level. I mean, I suspect because there's more, there are more complex things going on, some of which are playing a content constraining role, there's likely to be less indeterminacy for conscious states or for beliefs and desires. And another thing you've got with um, uh, all of our rich, complex states, things like beliefs and desires, is a lot of compositionality. So you've got representations that are recycled across a whole range of different contexts. You know, my dog thought or my idea of a meter or an idea of a person, each of those gets recycled across loads and loads of different contents, uh, context. And so that's a kind of way of focusing its content. It's got to be got to have a content that works across all of those. The, there is a bit of compositionality in the case studies I'm looking at, but it's much more limited. And so that's another reason why uh, we, we'd expect more indeterminacy in those kinds of cases. It's, it seems to me it's a question of forces for courses. We want a level of indeterminacy that fits with the kind of explanatory practices that seem to be well supported in a, in a domain. And if we're talking about animal signaling, say, then uh, there's various fine-grained distinctions that we can make with our uh, conceptual resources um, that it would be a bit odd to expect that simple representational system to be obeying. And so uh, as a result, there are things that are really different. Maybe they're not even necessarily co-instantiated, but where there's just not enough complexity in the system to be homing in on a content that decides between them. Mm-hmm. So do you, do you think the, the, the gloss or heuristic account might be okay for the, that, zone of indeterminacy ah um okay so let me just read your suggestion back to you so i said this um this internal signal is indeterminate between um uh, here's my home burrow and here's a safe burrow or here's my regular burrow i mean various things that we could express in language that are slightly different and so my claim is it just represents something like a disjunction of those things so the state would be correct if any of those things are true, and in pretty much all of the life of the organism, they're just they're just uh, coincidentiated. And your thought is, ah, but we could we could add a pragmatic layer where, for some explanatory, for some explainers, uh, it's easier to get your head around one rather than another. So there might be pragmatic reasons for going with one rather than another. That's an intriguing thought. I haven't thought of that. But that would be a, a bit like combining my view with Egan's view, and just having her pragma- pragmatic layer as a, like a final layer on top. I don't think she'd be very very happy with that, but I can't immediately see a, <laughs> a reason for resisting it. Once, I mean, my concern is to have the level of determinacy that I think is there be fixed independent of the eye of the of the representational explainer. Nice idea. Yeah, I don't think she would be happy, but but you know, it certainly makes sense that uh, she's going to be focusing. I mean, if she if she says, you know, the uh, you know, we can give one gloss in which the system is representing, you know, chess pieces, and another in which it's representing war material, um, and that that just seems that just seems prima facie a case of of possible just well, it's just indeterminate, you know, um, so there. Maybe it's another case of sort of talking past each other, possibly. Yeah. So I think in that kind of case, I would, I mean, in, in a case that's as different as that, I would think there'll be facts about what the computer was designed to do and what it's actually doing that will decide between those. Uh-huh. But so my, my kinds of indeterminacy are probably a, a little bit more fine grained than that. But then I don't see an immediate objection to thinking that there might be pragmatic reasons for going with one or other of the indeterminate disjuncts. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't think I I don't think there's very much pernicious indeterminacy in the actual case studies I've looked at. It's not the kind of indeterminacy that will keep the person who's studying rat navigation awake at night. It's it's the kind of philosopher's fine grained distinctions you might make, which these rats uh, place cell systems are probably not making at all. Um, so let's let I mentioned the the distinction that that has its own sort of historical within philosophy of mind uh, issue of the difference between content playing a causal explanatory role and content being merely causally efficacious or you know playing some sort of explanation, but it's not actually causal. And I wasn't sure. I th- I think you were being agnostic between those two. I mean, could you could you say something about those, you know, where you stand? I mean, especially given your focus on the explanatory role of content. Yeah, yeah. So I was being agnostic between those and combining ag- agnosticism about whether they're causally relevant or causally efficacious with a positive argument that they're at least causally relevant. The thing I'm keen to establish is that there's some real underpinning for the explanatory practices of appealing to representations to explain behavior and this puzzling thing that we have this notion of correctness which doesn't seem to depend on intrinsic properties you've got some state that it's just the same whether it's correct or incorrect and what happens next in some sense internally is just the same whether it's correct or incorrect yet whether it's correct or incorrect makes all the difference in the world that was the kind of puzzling thing i wanted to get clear on and a central reason for that is that the thing being explained is world-involving. So once you're uh, explaining how the organism brings about distal results in the world, gets things in the world, and so on, uh, you can see why there's space for these relational facts getting into the picture and uh, correctly representing turns out to be one of these kind of quite complex relational facts. And so it's seeing the nature of this um, real world-involving pattern that representations are uh, part of that gives them their explanatory relevance and and their causal relevance so that's the thing i really want to establish then then it seems to me we're in the same ballpark as quite a lot of um, properties that are appealed to in the sciences um, where there's a a practice of using these kind of properties in explanation they're clearly causally relevant uh, but then there are kind of interesting metaphysical issues about whether there's some causal exclusion going on and where the real causal oomph is so the reason I want to stay agnostic is it seems like the work for a theorist of content is to get to the stage where we understand representational content uh, well enough that it looks like lots of other um, properties in the special sciences, as it's called, lots of other relatively high-level properties in the sciences. So that's what the, the work I was keen to establish. I see. Okay, that's that's very helpful. Um, so let me ask... But then in the background, you might think, well, what... Now, if I was doing a slightly different project and trying to give an account of causal efficacy and what is causation, uh, then there are certain kinds of accounts where the thing that I've said about causal relevance, the kind of answer I've given on, on causal relevance might be enough to get causal efficacy as well. Because of what I've argued is that there's a world-involving pattern, uh, but representational content and their distal, their, their distal results in behavior are involved in that doesn't march in step with any intrinsic story so it's not like there are so there are new generalizations that you see in the world involving patterns that are just missing if you were to look at an organism and its internal goings on and 
um, kind of factorize that and see how that interfaced at the input and output with things going on in the world. And on some views of um, the nature of causation, having a kind of new level of real patterns is enough um, where there's patterns of um, dependency and covariation uh, is enough to get a new level of, of causal efficacy. So that's why I want to be agnostic. I don't want to rule out those kinds of pictures where there's causal efficacy at lots of different levels in the in the natural world. And if, if you have that kind of picture, I think content is a good candidate to be one of those levels at which you get causal efficacy. Right, right. Yeah, and that, that does get into sort of metaphysics of mind more. So you also mentioned no, normativity. I mean, that's an important fact, this idea of correctness, incorrectness, conditions, and world involvingness. Um, but you also say that normativity is, is not an inherent feature of content. Could you explain that? Yeah. So one, so I think this is one of those cases where it depends what you mean by normativity. So one grasp we have on normativity is when something is required for a norm, we ought to do it. Like there's a pro tanto reason to do it, or it ought to be the case. Um, and central examples of that are moral and ethical. And so if that's your notion of normativity, if there's some notion which uh, all things, uh, uh, you know, by the light of the world, um, from an objective perspective, things ought to be this way. Then I don't think we find that kind of normativity in the in the case of representational explanation. We find something that looks like a normative kind of pattern of behavior. You've got correctness and incorrectness. You've got things going right and going wrong for the organism. Uh, but in the end, I think we can understand those distinctions in purely descriptive terms. There's, there's no need for an additional realm of oughts. So there's two ways of describing that. You could describe that as not real normativity, um, leaving it open that, say, the moral case has a real kind of normativity. Or you could think that, well, this is a kind of normativity, although it's one that we can understand in purely descriptive terms. So if purely descriptive normativity is an oxymoron for you, then you better say this isn't normative at all. Uh, but I mean, I've had both reactions. I've heard people say, no, no, just because you can give a purely descriptive account of it doesn't mean it's not normative because the practice looks normative. And other people say, well, it can't be normative because the normative. So the, the kind of diagnostic question is, uh, if you were misrepresenting, ought you to be getting it right? Um, and I don't think I have any ingredients in this picture at the subpersonal level where uh, we know what the organism ought to be doing in that sense. Um, all I can say is when it's misrepresenting, um, it's more likely that things won't go well for it. But my notion of going well is just this one that's connected to learning functions and evolutionary functions and, and persisting. I and mean, we can just raise the question of that. Is there any reason we ought to persist? Or is there any reason we ought to do the things we've learned to do and so on? So that's, that, that's why um, I think the clearest way of pitching the count is, is that it's not really normative. It doesn't have the kind of normativity that um, is familiar from other bits of philosophy, like moral philosophy. I see. Although that that sense of normativity, I mean, that was one of Millikan's, right? Um, the idea that if you have a, a biological function or at least evolutionary function, you, you get your normativity right there. Yeah. So I think that is a difference um, from the way that I'm thinking, between the way I'm thinking about it and the way that Ruth Millikan is thinking about it. So there was a project that she and others were pursuing in the 1980s that said, um, a central thing about intentionality, about representing the P, is that it's normative. Um, and we can reduce that normativity to the normativity of function. And my view is that functions aren't really normative. And representational explanation, at least at the level I've been looking at, isn't really normative. And we can't reduce uh, representing correctly to um, 
anything about function because the, the thing about function is just an ingredient in a much bigger picture. So there's not a reduction between those two things going on. So that's, you know, that's a difference between friends on the same side of the line. But I think that is a substantial difference from the way that um, Millikan and others were thinking about the project uh, in the 1980s. Okay, I see. Um, so let me let me circle back to the issue of the relationship between this account of subpersonal representations and then the the personal or conceptual uh, representations that we think about when we think about beliefs and desires and and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then consciousness as well. So I mean th this whole area, you know, Brentano and, and, and his, you know, and afterwards, um, it, it starts from thinking about thought, you know, as, as we think of it in terms of what, what people do when you're sitting there with your eyes closed and thinking about something. And then there's always this kind of switch to, well, I'm just going to talk about subpersonal. And that's, there's, you know, very good motivations for doing that. But um, how do you see where how these two different ideas of subpersonal representations and then beliefs, desires, and personal level representations, how do you see those perhaps getting tied together? Yeah, so I can't give you a very detailed answer to that because I haven't settled on one. And I've in the light of that, I'm trying to keep quite an open mind. So uh, I'm not really uh, got any view that's well worked out enough to, to to settle on it. So one thing is, it does seem to me that there are some importantly different things going on at the personal level that may well make a difference to content determination. So consciousness, this big mysterious thing that we only partly understand, that might make making a difference. Metacognition, uh, the way that uh, the representations that we have at the personal level, and certainly the conscious ones, seem to be ones that we also have a, a sense of the accuracy of. That might be making a difference. When we get to concepts, concepts are inferentially connected to one another. They come in groups. They have these uh, subject predicate compositional structures that may all be relevant for fixing content. And beliefs and desires and the concepts that they involve are tied up in social practices where we don't just learn from one another, but we kind of um, hold one another to account epistemically and we criticize one another. And, uh, those, those kinds of normative practices may be important when we're talking about beliefs and desires in a way that just doesn't exist in the lower level cases. So those are all reasons for thinking the account may be different. Um, but I, I don't see it clearly enough even to have a positive view that my account can't extend to these cases. So you know, one of the options is, yeah, just do the same again. But it doesn't, that doesn't seem to me very likely. More likely... Um, is that um, with a better understanding of these additional components, we'll be able to work towards theories of content that work for the higher level cases. Now, even there, there's two options. It might be that uh, all I've done is managed to give an account of the nature of some personal representation, where some personal just means setting aside these complicating factors. And that really tells us nothing about the personal level cases, the ones that interest in Brentano and everyone else. And we just have to start again. I don't have an argument that that's false, but I'm a bit more optimistic. I mean, we've got a puzzling phenomenon and the uh, belief-desire case has quite a lot structurally in common with the subpersonal cases. So my hope is that getting really clear on how it works in the subpersonal cases will help us build up to the personal level cases. But I mean, until we have more of the picture, then um, 
don't think I can make good on that either. So really, the official line and the because it's the thing that it's, it's, it's as far as I got is just to be pretty open-minded about um, what's going to happen in the personal level cases um, and and how that story is likely to go. Do Do you think some of the just we're we're running out of time, but I just to follow up a little bit. Do you think some of the empirical work in say bacterial communication or you know some actually low low relatively low level but still plausibly social communication systems might provide some sort of an insight i think probably not the thing that i'm thinking is distinctive about the social for us is that we've got reflective practices of of um holding one another to account so bacterial quorum sensing and conditioning behavior in that way that seems like the kind of thing that one of my very tell accounts would be quite well suited for capturing doesn't it doesn't seem to have the additional layers of complexity that come with people forming beliefs based on concepts where concepts are kind of socially constructed tools that may be getting part of their correctness conditions out of the normative standards of your whole community for using this for using this tool and not just um, facts about how it is that you've learned it or you use it yourself. Okay, so uh, like to end with a question about where you are going now in terms of your research. Are you following up this book or turning to something else? So uh, I've been interested in concepts for a long time um, and thought about the nature of representation in the case of concepts. Uh, so I'm mostly thinking about concepts now but not tackling the very same question as in the book not asking what the right theory of concepts is but asking a bunch of related questions uh, but aren't quite quite the same about how concepts work how they figure in our inferential practices what kind of information structures they figure in and then um, the connection between concepts and metacognition so there's quite a lot of interesting work in the cognitive sciences recently on processes of monitoring that go on in uh, human and other animal cognition that lead to control and particularly non-conceptual kinds of monitoring. So ones that we, that go on without us having to conceptualize it or reflect on it as such. And there's some initial indications that there's some of that going on with concepts. So I'm interested in integrating those things, the kind of non-conceptual metacognition as applied, applied to concepts and conceptual thinking and inferences and reasoning. Maybe eventually I can circle back and think about the, the intentionality question with concepts first, but um, I mean, it's just such a big and complicated issue. I'm just really thinking about concepts as such uh, at the moment. Uh, very good. So I think we are out of time. So I want to thank you again for taking the time to talk with New Books and Philosophy. Well, thank you for reading it and asking so many questions that are right on the money about the places to quest, the, the press and uh, and also the places where I think could do with a bit better explanation. So it's been a pleasure being able to talk about it. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Nicholas Shea, Professor of Philosophy at the Institute of Philosophy, University of London. We've been talking about his new book, Representation in Cognitive Science, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.